as I'm writing the story and as I'm storyboarding it, I'm finding more and more moments that provide to me these like revelations that I would get out of a single painting. It's almost like I, I don't know if it's just a phase of how I do, how I process things up and down, but like I just find that the painting wasn't, wasn't telling enough of the story for me and that I'm finding more um, excitement and joy out of explaining things that surrounded the painting as to like why I made the painting. Welcome to the Studio Break Podcast. I'm your host, David Linaway. For today's 185th episode, I'm joined once again by Esteban Del Valle, who was last with us in March of 2012. Esteban currently lives and works in Brooklyn, New York, where he is an interdisciplinary artist making murals, paintings, as well as installations, sculptures, videos, animations, all sorts of great stuff, and you can find all of it at estebandelvalle.com, so please definitely check that out before this interview. Again, we discuss all sorts of topics, or at least he kind of shares insight into all the things that have gone on in the past five or so years. You can also find him on Instagram at estebandelvalle112, so check him out there as well. Studio Break is made possible in part by generous support from the Osage Arts Community, which is a proud sponsor of Studio Break. Osage Arts Community is an artist residency that provides temporary time, space, and support for the creation of new artistic work in a retreat format, serving creative people of all kinds, including visual artists, composers, poets, fiction, and nonfiction writers. Osage is located on a 180-acre working farm in the rural mountainside setting of central Missouri, bordered by the lovely Gasconade River. OAC provides residencies to those working alone, as well as welcoming collaborative teams, offering living space and workspace in a country environment to emerging and mid-career artists. Interested parties should visit Osage Arts Community's website for more information as they are now accepting applications for the 2018 season. Osage Arts Community, where land, art, and community ignite. Studio Break is a podcast website. We feature a variety of different artists and art organizations, and each of our posts share images of artwork as well as links for more information. Of course, you can listen to these candid interviews and discussions on studiobreak.com using the default player, or you can click that iTunes hyperlink and subscribe to the podcast and peruse episodes that way. And again, at this point, we've got a big, healthy archive, which can be accessed right on that left sidebar on the Studio Break homepage. So go back month by month, check out some of the podcasts that you might have missed. Please note that in addition to the podcast, we have Studio Break video, and you'll find a couple of posts on studiobreak.com to our YouTube page. Again, just a handful of videos thus far, but we will be expanding. Of course, if you are on social media, please like our Facebook page. You can find us on Instagram at studio underscore break, and of course, follow us on Twitter at Studio Break. And with some announcements out of the way, here is our interview with Esteban Del Valle. Stay tuned. Well, welcome back to Studio Break, Esteban Del Valle. How are you? Doing well, David. 
And again, we were just catching up about all the stuff that you've been going on and doing. And again, it's been nearly a little bit over five years since we spoke. Um, you know, at the time you were wrapping up various projects and hopefully we'll kind of get caught up on some of the exciting things that you've been doing. But, you know, we were just talking a little bit about the, uh, I guess, transition a little bit that you were describing, because I think back when we talked, you were maybe kind of focusing a bit more um, entirely on painting. I know that you had finished doing a residency at uh, Hubbub after graduate school and, you know, kind of moved on to to do a number of various other projects and, and things like that. But could you describe just a little bit, you know, that that kind of uh, how, how that happened, how you started kind of exploring these uh, different facets of, of making to, to kind of where you are at, I guess, now? Sure. Yeah, I remember um, when I was in South Carolina at Hubbub, I had just started um, exploring like uh, video making. And I think that just came out of a uh, urgency of trying to process graduate school and trying to get away from the influence of my professors who I really valued their feedback but I kind of found myself frustrated as I was hearing too much of their voices in the studio and I remember this thing about Chuck Close talking about when he was at Yale I think uh, he was painting very much like de Kooning and he said the only person painting more de Koonings than de Kooning was, was him um, <laughs> And he said in order to get away from it, he had to remove all the tools that would allow him to paint like de Kooning. So he ended up using these airbrushes and getting rid of all the conventional brushes and whatnot. And uh, I had a similar experience, and I really was thinking about that Chuck Close um, that Chuck Close story when I decided to, if I was going to get beyond the painting influence of, of my instructors, I was going to have to let go of the tools that would allow me to, to replicate their influence. So I, I turned to just doing video. It ended up working out to be really exciting for me because it allowed me to bring in things I was already very passionate about, um, just on the side, just hobbies of, of really being an amateur film buff. You know, I'm not like very good at memory of processing names and directors Mm -hmm. and dates and stuff, but I really enjoyed watching, uh, old films, film noir, black and white films. And I would just kind of see there, there was something I just gravitated towards them and I was trying to understand why, and that was just happening on the side. So it naturally spilled into my studio when I decided to uh, leave the studio and start trying to make weird movies. And this it's kind of funny, you know, we talked, it's been so long since we last spoke, but there's really been this perfect uh, full circle because um, I'll come back to it. But essentially I made videos, left videos, went back into painting, went back into murals, which is where my start was, went from murals back to the studio and now I'm going back into video and and that's all kind of happened in the past five years. Basically from Hubbub, there was a pretty um, intense experience I had where I uh, I did a couple of residencies and and ended up back in Chicago for a handful of months uh, when my dad decided to run for mayor against Ron Emanuel. And it was a grassroots campaign, and my dad's been an organizer, activist, and politician his entire life in Chicago. Uh, And he was the first Puerto Rican state senator in Illinois' history, first Latino elected to citywide office. And he, uh, I can't remember if we had started, I think we did start talking about this last time, because uh, in 2011, I believe, I did Skowhegan residency in Maine, where I really started to unpack the question of like where was I within my work like 
uh, yeah, I was at the time I was dealing with a lot of heavy political issues, but there was this, there was, there was this, like, it was almost like it could be made by anybody. And while that's a very simple, like grad school critique or residency critique feedback, it, it, the struggle of that question became, um, very urgent because it, the, the personal space wasn't simply about making better work. It was, it was about whether or not I felt fulfilled as a creative person, um, as a human. So I started really being more honest and open and dealing with um, stuff that I was allowing to reveal um, reveal itself to me through the process or through the work itself, specifically like vulnerabilities and insecurities I had about being an artist, about being a political artist, about as any son walking in his father's footsteps, kind of dealing with um, an incredible and beautiful legacy of my father uh, and how I was relating to my role as an artist, as a public figure, um, whether your art exists within a public space by itself or, you know, even a gallery is a form of public space, even the digital realm is a form of public space. For me, Beyond that, it was even more intentional. I've always been very vocal about my work. I lecture about it a lot. I, sh- I exhibit a lot. I also have this ongoing thing of being a, a muralist. So I've definitely dealt with various types of public spaces. And it's something I think about a lot. So within my studio, I kind of have this um, this weird like mirror of my father's life, but in a completely different profession in which I'm organizing or... Um, or speaking out about something or, you know, or just simply uh, trying to build community, something my father always emphasized and I watched him. So I, I ended up kind of taking this approach of getting more personal within the political realm and realizing how, how much more was there for me as an artist. And that naturally kind of helped me um, break down the boundaries between mediums and genres and influences as well. I, I I'm a big fan of Albert Einstein, who I always say is my biggest influence in the studio. And he, uh, there's a there's a quote of his that he said, "Originality is just knowing how to hide your sources." And I took that to heart. This idea that there wasn't a there wasn't a, a desperate need to be original. I wasn't concerned with that at a certain point. What I was concerned with was to be more me, to be more honest about being me. And when you realize that an individual is just this complicated network and composite of influences, and you open yourself to being okay with sharing those influences, you kind of end up creating this thing that is more you than maybe stuff would be when you try to perform a space of aesthetic approval or conceptual approval that exists within institutional uh, thinking and and institutional representations and galleries, museums, or even the critique that artists carry in their heads that are byproducts of institutional influences. It's like I had to I had to get beyond those voices and understand that uh, there was this like beautiful land on the other side of my fears, you know. And uh, I started breaking down for my own purposes. It wasn't it wasn't trying to. Um, I wasn't trying to, quote, unquote, make a good piece. I was trying to make um, something interesting to me that was honest and revealing. And because it was such a sensitive topic of dealing with um, my father losing the election and um, me me trying to come to grips with uh, what it meant to be making political art, you know. And in the film, 
it kind of, uh, I do a lot of hand-painted sets referencing uh, Travis Bickle's apartment from Martin Scorsese's Taxi Driver, uh, Jimmy Stewart. There's a scene from Jimmy Stewart's uh, Mr. Smith Goes to Washington. Um, there's also uh, paintings that become props and representations of political banners and stages and the idea of painting as a stage or drawing as a stage and back and forth until eventually the history painting, the political cartoon, the caricature, the memoir like kind of all melts into become this um, very collaged aesthetic um, very hodgepodge just together narrative and oh I kind of I kind of see them as like these like mix between uh, political cartoons and 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 animated journal entries and um, kind of they stack time and move in and out of uh, me reflecting on an event that's happened within my lifetime, but through the lens of the things that I've been influenced by or gravitated to, such as everything from the civil rights movement to film noir and being a person of my age and my generation, those things are, are far from me. However, growing up in my household, I think, um, my dad's work as a, as a person, as a human, made the civil rights such a, a um, immediate thing within my, my growing up. It's something that even my sister has taken to very strongly and has become um, a lawyer with the MacArthur Fellowship at Northwestern, dealing a lot with you know um, overturning wrongful convictions or helping uh, fight immigration policies and stuff like that. And I think it's something that kind of uh, growing up in that household influenced my way of thinking to the point where I had a hard time for a very long time and still do have a hard time existing within what is uh, how art is often taught within institutions. So the residency space has been allowed me to kind of um, evolve with with the resources but not having like the eyes that can kind of make me second guess myself sometimes as I think we all do as artists it's mm-hmm. like you, you can be as confident as you want but as soon as somebody says something might not be working <laughs> you know you start to doubt it so I've always been a fan of not letting people in the studio until I have a piece almost done to to completed I really haven't really wanted feedback on work as I've been making it because um because of that very reason i don't like to i don't like to doubt myself within that creative space because i see that creative space as a space of empowerment not a space of uh accolades or a space of performance of of um of performance of consensus you know so i think because of that like all the boundaries have kind of been blurred for me and uh that has then gotten into since it's been five years um you know, after Skowhegan, I did the Fine Arts Work Center Finished Viable Option. Then I did Smack Melon, which was a studio program in New York that gave me a, a studio in Brooklyn. And while I was doing that, it was kind of like the height of me getting involved, reintroduced to um, muralism and graffiti and what, what has been deemed a street art, uh, which is something I grew up doing. And is also gone hand in hand with my constant kind of identity crisis within my pursuit of an art education and uh, an art career is this kind of uh, question of taste and and how um, 
lowbrow and quote unquote lowbrow and highbrow art worlds function and how taste is uh, subject to privilege and class and education and all that stuff. And I found myself in these like really prestigious academic settings and still feeling like I was faking the funk, like mm-hmm. I was taking crazy pills, like I didn't <laughs> understand why everybody liked this one piece and I didn't get it, so therefore I must be stupid and I can't tell everybody that I don't like it. And and then I would find them, you know, mocking the stuff I did like and telling me how bad it was and then me having to try to like understand what that meant. And uh, I could have gone the defensive route, which I did at times, but instead I kind of really, I became really intrigued by that discrepancy and it um, led me to another Einstein uh, impacted moment in which Einstein, when asked how he could um, ever see beyond Newtonian ideas of gravity because uh, prior, you know, he wasn't the only one, but really prior to, to that time period, nobody was asking the question about no, why nobody was asking the questions about Newtonian ideas of gravity. And he said, uh, every age is ruled by an invisible tyrant, which most people fail to see. And I started obsessing over this invisible tyrant question within myself, personal and art-wise and education and family structure, etc. Like, what are these things that rule and dictate our logic so much so that we're not even aware of their presence? Like, we, we almost think it's a reflex, um, so much so that we're not aware that whatever reflex is, it's like it's beyond the person behind the curtain. It's like the manufacturer of the curtain itself, you know, um, and... You, you don't ask that question. You ask who's behind the curtain. You don't ask, hey, who made that curtain? Who's who's the tyrant mm-hmm. behind the curtain industry? Uh, and I think I, uh, in asking that question, uh, the boundaries kind of started falling away even more so. And I started asking, well, what is this? What is the difference between a mural and mural culture and mural communities and the gallery world and the residency communities I experienced? Because I was definitely experiencing tension, uh, mostly from what, for lack of a better term, I'll call like the highbrow art world. Mm-hmm. Um, I was experiencing a certain type of alienation. I felt like. Um, at first, I thought maybe it's just in my head, but I ha- it had been confirmed by several friends that uh, there was kind of this feeling of like from the, these peers that I had built up in a certain end of, of the world in certain sections of my life that it's like, well, what is he doing? Why is like why is he doing this like um, why is he doing this like illustrative, like sensationalized, lowbrow like mural painting or these community murals you know sometimes they were less they they could back the community murals but it depended on the aesthetic Mm -hmm. and for me it was kind of like I had to rediscover I had to work through all those things all over again uh within within painting walls because it was a different world there was a different standard for what was good there was a different standard for what was uh what was political what was um what was not political, what was incredibly selfish or inconsiderate of a public space and on and onward. So I had to like navigate a whole nother art education that was really exciting for me. And I think what was most exciting for me is I couldn't understand why any, any side of the art gamut would have, would value one thing over another Mm -hmm. in terms of say one thing is more right or more wrong. 
And that led me to that Einstein quote because of several experiences I had within a Skowhegan context, one of which was curating a video show uh, with about, I think it was six or seven other peers. And during one of our meetings, we were kind of making, uh, well, I wasn't, it was like they were making, several of my peers were joking about how there were a couple pieces they really liked. And then at the last minute of that video, uh, somebody would make a bad editing choice or a bad choice. They'd be like, ah, oh, this person ruined this piece. Mm-hmm. And everybody's kind of laughing about it in this very Orwellian two minutes of hate <laughs> fashion. And uh, I couldn't help because I had always slightly felt distant from, from how they related to critical um, conversation. Uh, not every one of my peers, but I just meant kind of in that world in general. I, you mm-hmm. know, there's, and uh, I had a really aha eureka moment in that moment. And I brought it up to them. I said, you know, it's really bizarre to me right now. And I was just kind of fully in this realization, which was um, it wasn't weird to me that somebody could make a video piece or make a piece that was so good. And then in the last space or the small corner of the painting or in the last minute of the video, make a bad decision that then ruins the entire piece. That, that to me was like irrelevant what was weird to me was that in a completely subjective field, there'd be a consensus of six people that agreed that that one choice was bad. Mm-hmm. And that was problematic to me because I felt like how could we be here talking about this unseen consensus and not talking about where that consensus arrives from? And that's where the invisible tyrant became a big um, a big concern to me. And I ended up doing a, a like a two hour performance lecture for Skowhegan on this concept and specifically tracing my evolution as an artist coming from graffiti, going to my MFA, going back to painting walls and dealing with all of my own um, insecurities because for a long time I kind of felt like I was wrong which is, once again, it's like how in a subjective field, in the, in the thing that's supposed to be the celebration of humanity, which is creativity, how is a person who gives their life to art ever, ever wrong? And the answer is you can't be, but you can, you can start to think you are. And I think uh, I've, de- I've definitely invested a lot of my recent energies through my work and through my lecturing and writing, which I'm starting on writing an essay for Vector magazine um, about a lot of what I'm talking about now and it's like I'm trying to um, trying to understand in my own like some type of not alternative model but like some type of uh, kind of trying to put words to what I've gone through in a concise way so that it can pr- provide a message for, for younger artists or any artists really struggling with similar identity issues or or trying to, because I think sometimes the concept of taste uh, and consensus is problematic to innovation and specifically, I guess, just creativity. It's it can hinder you from making good decisions in the in the true sense, and in, in that I think good decision is one that arrives from a moment of clarity and not one of doubt or fear. Mm-hmm. And I think a lot of times this conversation of taste that we have learned is so rooted in fear that we don't ask where it came from. And then we, more importantly, we don't go to the curtain manufacturer because where it came from is just the person behind the curtain. 
you know, there's more steps behind that, which, you know, and in, in, in what I'm currently writing, I'm arguing, can even be traced back to just basically colonialist thought. Um, you know, essentially the scientific method, empiricism, and eventually colonialism, which then ultimately could be, you know, just some type of human urge to, to power grab. But this is all, you know, it's kind of, it's come into my work in, in ways that aren't necessarily literal in that, for me, uh, as these boundaries have broken down, it's almost like my choices as a person in everyday space and what things I choose to make and where I choose to make them are part of this larger project, which is me just trying to understand what, what this journey has been. So um, in the past five years, I went through making a lot of murals um, and, and getting a little bit of traction with that that brought me internationally uh, to paint in several different countries in Colombia and the Caribbean and, um, and then ultimately led to what recently just opened like a month ago, which was a contribution to the first museum ever dedicated to urban contemporary art, which opened in Berlin. And it's a legitimate museum. It's funded, it's beautiful space, and it's got its opening exhibition um, was incredible. Um, beautiful collection of work of, of several of the people who have been a part of this ongoing movement, which many of my academic art peers have refused to acknowledge as being something of value. And it's just interesting. It's like at the same time, I've also watched High Fructose. I was at the... Um, 10-year anniversary of High Fructose magazine at Virginia Mocha Museum, in which there was another beautiful exhibition acknowledging the contributions to visual culture that this magazine has has had. And there is one of the stand-ins for what people would deem, you know, like lowbrow mm-hmm. visual culture. So it's like this interesting transition, and it's also like a lot of us are getting older. Like, you know, graffiti writers got older and got jobs, and some of them were able to keep jobs in the arts, and some of them kept on, you know, making connections. And I'm think there's like a different thing than I think what happened in the 80s between um, graffiti and gallery world in that uh, the development of the social media changing the concept of public space has really changed how um, graffiti or street art, more specifically street art, you know, which is essentially just a, a, a revitalization of a muralist movement, one that's more often, like, I, it's hard to say whether it's as socially conscious as, as muralism was originally. I would say it's almost half and half, you know, half, half unrelated to any, you know, social concern other than the fact that creativity is an act of rebellion in itself and, uh, and the other half kind of very socially concerned. So it's kind of a weird thing, but it's, you know, I, I find myself, I've been made a lot of paintings in between and Smack Melon was a couple years ago, I think, Mm-hmm. And that was when I did my car piece, which I guess I had started telling you about. And I did complete that piece. It took a long time for me because I found that uh, I made this video. I built this sculpture and made this video. And then I just couldn't bring myself to edit it because it had a different life now that it was made than when it was in my imagination. And I, I'm happy with the piece. But what it led me to realize is that the story wasn't big enough mm-hmm. and uh that's something I experienced recently in a, in a burst of about a year 
I've been working on a lot of paintings. Um, I've done a couple of solo exhibitions over the past couple of years. I had a solo show in LA, a solo show outside of DC, a solo show in Norfolk, Virginia, and a solo show in South Carolina. And I think that was in the past couple of years. So it's been like a lot of paintings, but the, um, the recent ones were uh, outside of DC and Viz Arts and Twitter's New York lobby. I did three large canvases for Twitter's lobby, which are still up. And those were back to back. So I was in New York. Things started picking up in a really great way. I was traveling so much that I was essentially on the road three weeks out of every month. And uh, I was painting or doing exhibitions or doing a talk or something like that. And I decided to give up my apartment, put my stuff in storage, and crash on my girlfriend's couch in Brooklyn in between traveling. I did that for about a year before... I decided, well, I needed to make more time and space for working in the studio. I was kind of burnt out on the murals for a bit. I was starting to get uh, disenchanted about certain things within, within that world as well. And it had a lot to do with the fact of uh, time frame, of time and speed. I wanted to slow down, uh, which wasn't something I was really used to in my work ever. I was, I've always been a very impulsive, immediate creator. I don't really edit a lot. I've never been a very fussy painter. I, I've never, I can't remember one painting I've ever gone back to and touched up after I said it was finished, you know, which I've always envied painters who, my friend Nydia, who like can work on one painting for months and just mm-hmm. keep fussing and, She's like, it's not right, or she'll we'll meet up, and she'll be like, I had a good day in a studio, and I, and I just don't even know what that world's like. It's kind of, it's much more of a monastic approach to making that I I really value. I find it beautiful and romantic, and then I get in and I just find myself like, if I if I can't immediately get something out, then I, it's you know like I, it becomes a burden to me. Um, and it's not just uh, it becomes an emotional burden. It becomes it becomes something that I, can't, I don't even want to look at, you know. And and that's something I had to learn the hard way from this next step, which was I, I decided to do a self-made residency while I worked on this Twitter thing and this uh, uh, solo show. And I took a job, a couple jobs, saved up money and moved to Rhode Island with my girlfriend. And we got a, like, basically got a two bedroom with two living room situation. And I turned one of the living rooms, uh, spaces into my studio and she's able to work remotely for her company in New York. And she turned one of the rooms into her office and we were there for about a year. And all I did was work on painting and, uh, I turned down a lot of mural jobs. I turned down a lot of opportunities that would have been uh, taking me out of the studio. And there was some financial, financial, uh, you know, some some strapped moments because of that, which also led to kind of a different perspective on speed of making. It kind of at times made things incredibly less urgent. You know, it's kind of this feeling of like, well, I got food in the fridge. I got a roof over my head. I got a studio. What else do I need to worry about? Mm-hmm. And other times it would become very urgent because it was this feeling of like, oh man, like I need to get a job soon or, you know, <laughs> soon. This is, this is a bad idea. What did I get myself into? It was just kind of that stillness and that quietness of the studio that can, that can drive you crazy and um, also push you through to the other side. 
And I made a few paintings that were very uh, difficult to make. And immediately when I was done, I thought they were good because they were difficult. And then I took me a second to realize that um, I wasn't being honest to myself. I was trying to paint like those people who take a long time on paintings. <laughs> mm-hmm. And I was trying to be a certain kind of painter. I'm just not. And I really had to understand uh, and look at like what it means to value and, ad- and vi- value and admire something um, and then be able to see that in yourself, but in a different way. And it's like kind of a, as corny as it sounds, Although even that, I hear myself being um, some double standards on insecurities because it's not corny, but it's, it's, it's about a space of self-love and understanding that, you know, the thing that you value in somebody else's work or in somebody else's method is in you, but in, in another form um, because they don't, they don't work the way you work. You know, I'm sure mm-hmm. some of my painter friends who work at that pace would love to not care about how fast or slow things are, you know, and just like be able to paint as quickly as I do um, or not be able to. It's not about ability, but more just um, be happy with those decisions as as quickly as I am. I think in that process, I kind of had some honest conversations with friends, friends I really respect their opinion in my studio. And then that led me to get back to a space of honesty within my work and I made some really some pieces I was really excited about in terms of drawings and all the while I'm still kind of dealing with this dual world of politics and personal and a lot of times it specifically looked like uh, either these um, cathartic drawings of, 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 a, of a personal experience in the world in the most superficial way of like say, like a, a monk scream, you know, I would do these almost sketchbook drawings that were um, just about what I was feeling and would be heavy-handed in, in their appearance of emotion. Or, um, But it's something that it goes back to my interest in film noir. It's like I've always been interested in cliché structure, um, the idea that the cliché is the skeleton, but it matters what kind of muscle and flesh you put on top of it and uh but that skeleton allows it to move uh and i think i've kind of been processing this idea of like sentimentality being almost like this um this filter that that uh or this tool that allows us to uh it stand in for love love in between moments of love because like love is like such this intense intense experience and they'll say the same thing for like pain or suffering it's like it's so dense and it's not a constant in that severity so the space in between we fill in different ways to carry on its memory uh sentimentality being one of those so i got really interested in those spaces of like of me drawing scenes of you know a romantic couple or or thinking about things like post-war paintings or the tracker this time period of painting in which painting the cafe scenes wasn't 
uh, a cliche. It was, it was what was around them. And, uh, Mm -hmm. so I've been thinking a lot about that and how that translates into my lifetime. So I started like really exploring, representing what's around me. What is my opera? What is my cafe? What is my, uh, absinthe, you know? And, um, in that space, uh, you know, I've done things like paint this huge triptych that's about Twitter. And one of which is a, essentially this portrait of the group run the jewels and me painting the back of the heads of these concert goers in this sweaty concert space and directly looking at Surratt's uh, beautiful fine Conte drawings of of opera and just thinking about how this is my opera this is my time period these are my poets this is my this would be my my portrait of of Oscar Wilde I've been thinking a lot about that and I and I feel like it's it's something that um, can be overlooked, and I don't know how I feel about that yet, but uh, overlooked by certain, I guess, like academic critical apparatus of just like, whoa, not valuing uh, certain elements of, of culture, of contemporary culture, such as, say, hip-hop, um, unless it's done in an over-the-top satirical manner that points out obvious tensions in race relations, such as something like a Hende Wiley or, or, you know, um, or point, points out like, you know, like the sexism or, or these kind of institutional problems. Uh, and it's like, there's also, I think there's also room for this, this kind of simple observation of being in a contemporary moment, you know, as opposed to having, like letting it, letting being in it be a moment of the representation of the space of the critical conversation surrounding the entire moment rather than taking one element of the critical conversation and making that the thing we're looking at. So I've been trying to unpack that, which has led me to really discuss a a lot of stuff about gentrification and, and to me is conversation neocolonialism, specifically how it relates to me again, like my guilt and my my reality of thinking, well, what neighborhood do I move to in New York without trying to contribute to gentrification again? How is it that I can be upset about the gentrification occurring in Chicago when I live in New York, when I am a gentrifier? How can I be a gentrifier, you know, like, well, I am a gentrifier, but, like, how do I feel about that being a person that is Mexican, Puerto Rican, and from uh, a family of, of, of somebody who's fought for communities of... of uh, minority community. So it's like this interesting thing that, you know, in addition to that, being an artist and being a part of the creative class and the role that that works within how that's been appropriated by, you know, hyper-capitalism and politics and everything. And so that stuff has started entering into my work into observations of just like the basic world around me of like, and I try to do it the same way through my, my what I was saying about my larger life as a project i also try to do that through the context of the the work itself so like you know to paint one piece about uh at my show in la was uh, was like kind of focused around this idea of like one hyper satirical political cartoon piece dealing with this kind of concept of like neocolonialism next to a like seductive painting of a woman looking through a wine glass and realizing that, you know, the whole show is paced that way and that this kind of, you can't, there, there's like a weird tension that happens 
uh, it's not weird. It's very, it's very kind of, um, I guess it's the evolution of like, here's the groundbreaking ceremony. Here's the men in suits ready to uh, cut the ribbon for the new condo building. And then here's the local artists who moved to the neighborhood because it's cool and cheap. And they're finally happy that a wine store opened up because they used to have to take the train to go to one. And it's like, there's this, um, there's this uh, enough accountability to go around, as I always say. And it's something that I try to implicate myself in as well, but not, but just so, just because I'm trying to understand it, you know? And so that has changed into, um, you know, from these paintings to me reaching a point in the recent painting series of doing, uh, so many large paintings back to back, uh, because I did several big ones dealing with the, the Trump election. Mostly, I was thinking about how that was uh, manifesting in hostile ways within simple domestic spaces and, and kind of removing the idea of, uh, not removing, but like that it wasn't Trump, but like this kind of, um, this tension that was coming out in, in violent ways, these violent bursts of just like social interaction, social violence, uh, not necessarily like physical violence. And, and then how that social violence was trickling into the home space. Uh, so I've started looking at once again, um, not my time period, but things I grew up looking at such as uh, kind of Americana art, Norman Rockwell being a huge one. Um, so I've been doing a lot of paintings that have been direct kind of evolutions of, of me looking at Rockwell's, say, um, the painting of Rudy Bridges being marched into school by the U.S. Marshals. I did a painting called, or a small drawing called Off to the Rally, which was a uh, take on my experience watching the Black Lives Matter movement going on in New York. And um, so there's like this similar kind of uh, young african-american girl kind of walking within this shift over the composition surrounded by these larger figures and uh i did one for called freedom from want based on the thanksgiving for freedom paintings that rockwell did which i'm consistently working theming off of um and then i've also referenced charles white images of dignity jacob lawrence's uh some of his work from the harlem renaissance and thinking about these time periods of culture from uh, underrepresented communities and then how they've kind of highlighted geographical points that have then been overtaken by capitalism and colonialism. And so that's, that's led me to feeling that invisible tyrant question coming up all over again and thinking that, well, what is it that intrigues me about these concepts? Why is it I'm, why is it I'm so concerned with figuring out what this means to me. And ultimately there's, there's a certain, I think, urge for me to, to, to find myself, locate myself back in a space of love and compassion to not build through a space of deconstruction. Um, cause that seems like it's an oxymoron, but I think the way art education is taught is through a deconstruction method. Um, the critique is structured in that way. The, uh, the way we carry that critique with us can kind of carry that deconstruction method. So I've been thinking about trying to be more constructive and building, and it's ironically led me back to this conversation of the universal. So now that I'm at the work center, I find myself um, 
realizing I, I want to tell stories. I want to get more into storytelling and I want to get into bigger concepts of the human condition. And that's led me to um, a story of a monk, a Giordano Bruno, and his um, being burned at the stake for, for refusing to recant about the universe being infinite. And that story has kind of become the base of this animation that I'm planning. And in the animation, it's now, when I say animation, it's now uh, an evolution from what I said as video. It's like I plan on using sets, costumes, uh, hand-drawn, digital, etc. It's like it'll just be everything. Uh, but I won't consider it a video because it'll all be done through stop motion or hand cut out moved animation. So it's going to be this narrative that places it almost in this sci-fi alternate dystopian reality situation about this. Uh, but however, like contemporary retelling of a version of that Giordano Bruno story and, uh, as I'm writing the story and as I'm storyboarding it, I'm finding more and more moments that provide to me these like revelations that I would get out of a single painting. It's almost like I, I don't know if it's just a phase of how I do, how I process things up and down, but like I just find that the painting wasn't, wasn't telling enough of the story for me and that I'm finding more, um, excitement and joy out of explaining things that surrounded the painting as to like why I made the painting in doing more lectures and realizing that I was like spending more time invested in explaining all the things that led up to the making of the painting I realized that the um, you know telling a story was gave me more room to do that and so now I'm, I'm just here just moved in like a week ago and um, starting to figure out what it looks like because I have no idea. I have no idea how I'm going to do it. I have no idea. I don't know anything really about animation. I've made three. My own. I've made them terrible ass backwards ways. Um, so that's everything now. I think you're caught up to speed. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you know, sorry. It's just so interesting. Um, and again, I've just kind of been captivated because that was literally like about a 40-minute explanation of that process and all these you know different aspects that we kind of look at as as makers but then also you were you know talking about a lot of political commentary and and just kind of you know different i guess experiences of life you know based on again where you're from where you live um and again a lot of a lot of times things that we just in some ways just have no control over you know mm-hmm. um and then it's like how how do you how do you change some of those those systems and then also kind of find your place in it? Um, so, again, that was a really interesting just kind of reflection to, to think about, you know. Um, and it sounds like, again, like a, a very, very fertile place for you to be. And so in terms of these, these uh, new projects and that, is there – and I, I say this uh, relative to time here <laughs> – but is there like a particular plan of action or is this just something that, you know, since you've been there – you know, it's just a matter of like setting it, setting out and, and seeing what, what happens to kind of combine all these ideas that you have and then yeah. all these different processes and, and just seeing, seeing what works and then adjusting what, what you need to. 
Yeah, I think it's, it's as you said, it's kind of seeing out, setting out and see what happens, but it's also like a weird kind of stacking of time in that it feels like I've already arrived at that place because that's why I have to make them is that mm-hmm. the way I've been processing information myself is kind of corresponding to this more visual storytelling method. I've been, like I said, I've been lecturing a lot more and doing, um, starting to write. And those two things go hand in hand with what I see as part of the animation project as well. It's like I almost want, I need to make these stories so that they can exist in the world. And uh, yeah, I don't, I don't know how much time we have because there's a whole reason why specifically this is like I'm starting to think about emotion as a medium and uh, kind of how I thought about cliche as a structure and thinking about how, you know, a painting is this this moment, a visual piece is this moment, but uh, a moving image, a time-based experience, this experience you carry with you, it kind of evolves within your memory of it. And uh, the evolution of it within you kind of kind of consistently changes. So I, I, I keep on joking and telling people because I remember Charlie Chaplin said, you know, he wanted to make a film that made somebody laugh and cry. Mm-hmm. And I want to make a film that makes somebody cry and then immediately makes them say, what the fuck just happened to me? Because <laughs> um, that's how I feel about being a human, you know? And mm-hmm. I, I think... I, I, my goal is to, you know, share them via, via social media through uh, YouTube and Vimeo for free and uh, just get them out there as uh, stories to pass around to people. And um, I kind of see the project as not ending there. I see the project as continuing through me speaking about these films and why I made them and, uh, and, and then even ho- uh, also explaining the process because I'm sure it's going to be a learning experience for me as well. You know, one of the things that you were talking about, you know, in terms of these kind of various um, experiences of, you know, different setups for institutions or, you know, like, again, we're thinking about the art world. So there's, you know, museum shows and gallery shows and, you know, there's all these different kind of facets. Um, But to kind of be able to kind of take charge then of, you know, like what you're putting out there, not having somebody that kind of maybe dictates that and then to kind of be able to you know, again, um, go out there and talk about it and, and to kind of interact with people again, much different than a solitary painting, you know, trying yeah. to do all those things, you know, it's a very interesting and very, I don't know, it, it makes a lot of use of the tools that we have today, you know? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So, well, very cool. Um, and so that's what you'd be working on. Um, is there, like I said, any, any kind of deadline in terms of like what's coming up then in terms of that, or do you have, uh, I have no idea. I okay. mean, I have a show, um, I have a show in, uh, November 1st that I'm trying to get, uh, one animation done for, but it's a short, it's a short looped animation. That's kind of the beginning of me exploring the process. It's not about the content as much. And that's a animation that's part of my Norman Rockwell series. It's based on his runaway painting, and it's um, "Freedom from Fear" is my take on it. And it's uh, so it'll be this looped animation. And then after that, though, it's uh, I've kind of committed to. I have another show in New York in in the spring, but I've kind of committed to making sure that there is no deadline on the animation. Mm-hmm. So I don't. Because I don't know how long it'll take, and I and I don't want, I don't want a deadline within these seven months. Because 
it's not just this one animation. Actually, I've, I've structured it in my head for three animations, and each one is like more complicated than the next. So each one is supposed to inform the process of the next. So the first one I make for this show is the first, and then the one I told you about, Bruno, is the second. And then all of those are because I've been really planning this third animation for a long time. That's a much longer story. So, um, you know, it could be anywhere between seven months to a couple of years or to five, six years because last time I did animations, after like five months I got tired of it and had to go back to painting. So we'll see. <laughs> Well, so where are the best places for people to, to check out your work and to, to follow you online? I think my website, Esteban.Valle.com, I, I uh, keep that updated kind of, but mostly Instagram is like where I post a lot about everything I do usually, and I'll be posting. I've been kind of, because I'm investing more into um Everything I've been talking about have kind of also been not the best at keeping any of these things posted, but uh, that is part of my idea too, this public space. And and so as I start building the animation stuff, I'm sure I'll be sharing it on Instagram, which awesome. is at Esteban Del Valle 112. Very, very cool. Well, again, um, I really appreciate you taking the time. Um, and again, a lot, a lot to think about. So, All right. Thanks a lot, Dave. Thanks for having me. Thanks once again to Esteban for joining me. If you want to check out more of Esteban's work and stay up to date with some of his new animations as well as paintings and all sorts of good stuff, check out EstebanDelValle.com. And, of course, you can follow him and stay up to date on his Instagram account at EstebanDelValle112. Studio Break is made possible in part by generous support from the Osage Arts Community, which is a proud sponsor of Studio Break. Osage Arts Community is an artist residency that provides temporary time, space, and support for the creation of new artistic work in a retreat format, serving creative people of all kinds, including visual artists, composers, poets, fiction, and nonfiction writers. Osage is located on a 180-acre working farm in the rural mountainside setting of central Missouri, bordered by the lovely Gasconade River. OAC provides residencies to those working alone, as well as welcoming collaborative teams, offering living space and workspace in a country environment to emerging and mid-career artists. Interested parties should visit Osage Arts Community's website for more information, as they are now accepting applications for the 2018 season. Osage Arts Community, where land, art, and community ignite. If you like this podcast, remember to check out the other interviews on studiobreak.com that you missed. Once again, each of our posts have images of the artist's work as well as links to their websites for more information. And you can listen to these interviews right on the Studio Break homepage or go to iTunes and subscribe to the podcast there. Of course, if you do that, we would love it if you would give us some feedback there and help just raise some visibility. You can also do that by sharing links. And, of course, we are on social media, so please like our Facebook page. You can, of course, find us on Instagram at Studio underscore Break. And, of course, you can send your tweets to at Studio Break. And I do want to remind you that we have a YouTube channel, so... Again, some of our posts have a link directly to our YouTube page for a Studio Break video, so please check out some of our stuff there as it expands. 
Before we close out, I'd like to thank Skylar Mail, who provides the music to Studio Break. You can check out his artwork at SkylarMail.net. If you'd like to see some of my paintings, please check out davidlinaway.com. And on a side note, since we are now officially six years into Studio Break, I do want to thank listeners who've stuck it out and enjoy listening to this podcast. It means a lot when I get messages and notes from time to time of artists and other people checking out this podcast. So please feel free to say hello and thanks so much for listening. We'll talk to you real soon.